Chapter eleven point one of the nine eleven Commission Report. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Corrie Samuel. The nine eleven Commission Report. Chapter eleven. Foresight and Hindsight. In composing this narrative, we have tried to remember that we write with the benefit and the handicap of hindsight. Hindsight can sometimes see the past clearly, with twenty-twenty vision. But the path of what happened is so brightly lit that it places everything else more deeply into shadow. Commenting on Pearl Harbor, Roberta Wallstetter found it much easier after the event to sort the relevant from the irrelevant signals. After the event, of course, a signal is always crystal clear. We can now see what disaster it was signalling, since the disaster has occurred. But before the event it is obscure and pregnant with conflicting meanings. As time passes, more documents become available, and the bare facts of what happened become still clearer. Yet the picture of how those things happened becomes harder to reimagine, as that past world, with its preoccupations and uncertainty, recedes and the remaining memories of it become coloured by what happened, and what was written about it later. With that caution in mind, we asked ourselves, before we judged others, whether the insights that seem apparent now would really have been meaningful at the time, given the limitations of what people then could reasonably have known or done. We believe the 9-11 attacks revealed four kinds of failures, in imagination, policy, capabilities, and management. 11.1. .1. Imagination. Historical Perspective. The 9-11 attack was an event of surpassing disproportion. America had suffered surprise attacks before. Pearl Harbor is one well-known case, the 1950 Chinese attack in Korea another. But these were attacks by major powers. While by no means as threatening as Japan's act of war, the 9-11 attack was in some ways more devastating. It was carried out by a tiny group of people, not enough to man a full platoon. Measured on a governmental scale, the resources behind it were trivial. The group itself was dispatched by an organization based in one of the poorest, most remote, and least industrialized countries on earth. This organization recruited a mixture of young fanatics and highly educated zealots, who could not find suitable places in their home societies, or were driven from them. To understand these events, we attempted to reconstruct some of the context of the 1990s. Americans celebrated the end of the Cold War with a mixture of relief and satisfaction. The people of the United States hoped to enjoy a peace dividend, as U.S. spending on national security was cut following the end of the Soviet military threat. The United States emerged into the post-Cold War world as the globe's preeminent military power but the vacuum created by the sudden demise of the Soviet Union created fresh sources of instability and new challenges for the United States. President George H. W. Bush dealt with the first of these in 1990 and 1991 when he led an international coalition to reverse Iraq's invasion of Kuwait. Other examples of U.S. leaders handling new threats included the removal of nuclear weapons from Ukraine, Belarus and Kazakhstan, 
the Nunluga Threat Reduction Programme to help contain new nuclear dangers, and international involvement in the wars in Bosnia and Kosovo. America stood out as an object for admiration, envy, and blame. This created a kind of cultural asymmetry. To us, Afghanistan seemed very far away. To members of Al-Qaeda, America seemed very close. In a sense, they were more globalized than we were. Understanding the Danger If the government's leaders understood the gravity of the threat they faced, and understood at the same time that their policies to eliminate it were not likely to succeed any time soon, then history's judgment will be harsh. Did they understand the gravity of the threat? The U.S. government responded vigorously when the attack was on our soil. Both Ramzi Youssef, who organized the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center, and Mir Amal Kanzi, who in 1993 killed two CIA employees as they waited to go to work in Langley, Virginia, were the objects of relentless, uncompromising, and successful efforts to bring them back to the United States to stand trial for their crimes. Before 9-11, Al-Qaeda and its affiliates had killed fewer than fifty Americans, including the East Africa embassy bombings and the coal attack. The U.S. government took the threat seriously, but not in the sense of mustering anything like the kind of effort that would be gathered to confront an enemy of the first, second, or even third rank. The modest national effort exerted to contain Serbia and its depredations in the Balkans between 1995 and 1999, for example, was orders of magnitude larger than that devoted to Al-Qaeda. As best we can determine, neither in 2000 nor in the first eight months of 2001 did any polling organization in the United States think the subject of terrorism sufficiently on the minds of the public to warrant asking a question about it in a major national survey. Bin Laden, Al-Qaeda, or even terrorism was not an important topic in the 2000 presidential election. Congress and the media called little attention to it. If a president wanted to rally the American people to a warlike effort, he would need to publicize an assessment of the growing Al-Qaeda danger. Our government could spark a full public discussion of who Osama bin Laden was, what kind of organization he led, what bin Laden or Al-Qaeda intended, what past attacks they had sponsored or encouraged, and what capabilities they were bringing together for future assaults. We believe American and international public opinion might have been different, and so might the range of options for a president, had they been informed of these details. Recent examples of such debates include calls to arms against such threats as Serbian ethnic cleansing, biological attacks, Iraqi weapons of mass destruction, global climate change, and the HIV-AIDS epidemic. While we now know that Al-Qaeda was formed in 1988, at the end of the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan, the intelligence community did not describe this organization, at least in documents we have seen, until 1999. A national intelligence estimate distributed in July 1995 predicted future terrorist attacks against the United States and in the United States. It warned that this danger would increase over the next several years. It specified as particular points of vulnerability the White House, the Capitol, symbols of capitalism such as Wall Street, critical infrastructure such as power grids, areas where people congregate such as sports arenas, 
and civil aviation generally. It warned that the 1993 World Trade Center bombing had been intended to kill a lot of people, not to achieve any more traditional political goal. This 1995 estimate described the greatest danger as transient groupings of individuals that lacked strong organization but rather a loose affiliations. They operate outside traditional circles but have access to a worldwide network of training facilities and safe havens. This was an excellent summary of the emerging danger based on what was then known. In 1996 to 1997 the intelligence community received new information making clear that bin Laden headed his own terrorist group with its own targeting agenda and operational commanders. Also revealed was the previously unknown involvement of bin Laden's organization in the 1992 attack on a Yemeni hotel quartering U.S. military personnel, the 1993 shootdown of U.S. Army Black Hawk helicopters in Somalia, and quite possibly the 1995 Riyadh bombing of the American training mission to the Saudi National Guard. The 1997 update of the 1995 estimate did not discuss the new intelligence. It did state that the terrorist danger depicted in 1995 would persist. In the update's summary of key points, the only reference to bin Laden was this sentence, Iran and its surrogates, as well as terrorist financier Osama bin Laden and his followers, have stepped up his threats and surveillance of US facilities abroad in what also may be a portent of possible additional attacks in the United States. Bin Laden was mentioned in only two other sentences in the six-page report. The Al-Qaeda organization was not mentioned. The 1997 update was the last national estimate on the terrorism danger, completed before 9-11. From 1998 to 2001, a number of very good analytical papers were distributed on specific topics. These included Bin Laden's political philosophy, his command of a global network, analysis of information from terrorists captured in Jordan in December 1999, Al-Qaeda's operational style, and the evolving goals of the Islamist extremist movement. Many classified articles for morning briefings were prepared for the highest officials in the government, with titles such as Bin Laden threatening to attack U.S. aircraft with anti-aircraft missiles, June 1998. Strains surface between Taliban and Bin Laden, January 1999. Terrorist threat to U.S. interests in Caucasus, June 1999. Bin Laden to exploit looser security during holidays, December 1999. Bin Laden evading sanctions, March 2000. Bin Laden's interest in biological, radiological weapons, February 2001. Taliban holding firm on Bin Laden for now, March 2001. Terrorist groups said cooperating on U.S. hostage plot, May 2001. And Bin Laden determined to strike in the U.S., August 2001. Despite such reports, and a 1999 paper on bin Laden's command structure for al-Qaeda, there were no complete portraits of his strategy, or of the extent of his organization's involvement in past terrorist attacks. Nor had the intelligence community provided an authoritative depiction of his organization's relationships with other governments, or the scale of the threat his organization posed to the United States. 
though Deputy DCI John McLaughlin said to us that the cumulative output of the Counter-Terrorist Centre, CTC, dramatically eclipsed any analysis that could have appeared in a fresh national intelligence estimate, he conceded that most of the work of the Centre's 30-40 to 40 person analytic group dealt with collection issues. In late 2000, DCI George Tenet recognised the deficiency of strategic analysis against Al-Qaeda. To tackle the problem within the CTC, he appointed a senior manager, who briefed him in March 2001 on creating a strategic assessment capability. The CTC established a new strategic assessments branch during July 2001. The decision to add about ten analysts to this effort was seen as a major bureaucratic victory, but the CTC laboured to find them. The new chief of this branch reported for duty on September 10, 2001. Whatever the weaknesses in the CIA's portraiture, both Presidents Bill Clinton and George Bush and their top advisers told us they got the picture, they understood bin Laden was a danger. But given the character and pace of their policy efforts, we do not believe they fully understood just how many people Al-Qaeda might kill and how soon it might do it. At some level that is hard to define, we believe the threat had not yet become compelling. It is hard now to recapture the conventional wisdom before 9-11. For example, a New York Times article in April 1999 sought to debunk claims that bin Laden was a terrorist leader, with the headline, U.S. hard put to find proof bin Laden directed attacks. The head of analysis at the CTC until 1999 discounted the alarms about a catastrophic threat as relating only to the danger of chemical, biological or nuclear attack and he downplayed even that, writing several months before 9-11. It would be a mistake to redefine counter-terrorism as a task of dealing with catastrophic, grand or super-terrorism, when in fact these labels do not represent most of the terrorism that the United States is likely to face, or most of the costs that terrorism imposes on U.S. interests. Beneath the acknowledgement that bin Laden and al-Qaeda presented serious dangers, there was uncertainty among senior officials about whether this was just a new and especially venomous version of the ordinary terrorist threat America had lived with for decades, or was radically new, posing a threat beyond any yet experienced. Such differences affect calculations about whether or how to go to war. Therefore, those government experts who saw bin Laden as an unprecedented new danger needed a way to win broad support for their views or at least spotlight the areas of dispute, and perhaps prompt action across the government. The national estimate has often played this role, and is sometimes controversial for this very reason. Such assessments, which provoke widespread thought and debate, have a major impact on their recipients, often in a wider circle of decision-makers. The national intelligence estimate is noticed in the Congress, for example. But, as we have said, None was produced on terrorism between 1997 and 9-11. By 2001, the government still needed a decision at the highest level as to whether Al-Qaeda was, or was not, a first-order threat, Richard Clark wrote in his first memo to Condoleezza Rice on January 25, 2001. In his blistering protest about foot-dragging in the Pentagon and at the CIA, sent to Rice just a week before 9-11, he repeated that the real question for the principals was, 
Are we serious about dealing with the Al-Qaeda threat? Is Al-Qaeda a big deal? One school of thought, Clark wrote in this September 4th note, implicitly argued that the terrorist network was a nuisance that killed a score of Americans every 18 to 24 months. If that view was credited, then current policies might be proportionate. Another school saw Al-Qaeda as the point of the spear of radical Islam, but no one forced the argument into the open by calling for a national estimate or a broader discussion of the threat. The issue was never joined as a collective debate by the U.S. government, including the Congress, before 9-11. We return to the issue of proportion and imagination. Even Clark's note challenging Rice to imagine the day after an attack posits a strike that kills hundreds of Americans. He did not write thousands. Institutionalizing Imagination The Case of Aircraft as Weapons Imagination is not a gift usually associated with bureaucracies. For example, before Pearl Harbor, the U.S. government had excellent intelligence that a Japanese attack was coming, especially after peace talks stalemated at the end of November 1941. These were days, one historian notes, of excruciating uncertainty. The most likely targets were judged to be in Southeast Asia. An attack was coming, but officials were at a loss to know where the blow would fall or what more might be done to prevent it. In retrospect, available intercepts pointed to Japanese examination of Hawaii as a possible target. But, another historian observes, in the face of a clear warning, alert measures bowed to routine. It is therefore crucial to find a way of routinizing, even bureaucratizing, the exercise of imagination. Doing so requires more than finding an expert who can imagine that aircraft could be used as weapons. Indeed, since Al-Qaeda and other groups had already used suicide vehicles, namely truck bombs, the leap to the use of other vehicles, such as boats, the coal attack, or planes, is not far-fetched. Yet these scenarios were slow to work their way into the thinking of aviation security experts. In 1996, as a result of the TWA Flight 800 crash, President Clinton created a commission under Vice President Al Gore to report on shortcomings in aviation security in the United States. The Gore Commission's report, having thoroughly canvassed available expertise in and outside of government, did not mention suicide hijackings or the use of aircraft as weapons. It focused mainly on the danger of placing bombs onto aircraft, the approach of the Manila airplot. The Gore Commission did call attention, however, to lax screening of passengers and what they carried onto planes. In late 1998, reports came in of a possible Al-Qaeda plan to hijack a plane. One, a December 4th presidential daily briefing for President Clinton, reprinted in Chapter 4, brought the focus back to more traditional hostage-taking. It reported Bin Laden's involvement in planning a hijack operation to free prisoners such as the blind sheikh, Omar Abdel Rahman. Had the contents of this PDB been brought to the attention of a wider group, including key members of Congress, it might have brought much more attention to the need for permanent changes in domestic airport and airline security procedures. Threat reports also mentioned the possibility of using an aircraft filled with explosives. The most prominent of these mentioned a possible plot to fly an explosives-laden aircraft into a U.S. city. This report 
circulated in September 1998, originated from a source who had walked into an American consulate in East Asia. In August of the same year, the intelligence community had received information that a group of Libyans hoped to crash a plane into the World Trade Center. In neither case could the information be corroborated. In addition, an Algerian group hijacked an airliner in 1994, most likely intending to blow it up over Paris, but possibly to crash it into the Eiffel Tower. In 1994, a private airplane had crashed onto the south lawn of the White House. In early 1995, Abdul Hakim Murad, Ramzi Yosef's accomplice in the Manila Airlines bombing plot, told Philippine authorities that he and Yosef had discussed flying a plane into CIA headquarters. Clark had been concerned about the danger posed by aircraft since at least the 1996 Atlanta Olympics. There, he had tried to create an air defense plan using assets from the Treasury Department after the Defense Department declined to contribute resources. The Secret Service continued to work on the problem of airborne threats to the Washington region. In 1998, Clark chaired an exercise designed to highlight the inadequacy of the solution. This paper exercise involves a scenario in which a group of terrorists commandeered a Learjet on the ground in Atlanta, loaded it with explosives, and flew it towards a target in Washington, D.C. Clark asked officials from the Pentagon, Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA, and Secret Service what they could do about the situation. Officials from the Pentagon said they could scramble aircraft from Langley Air Force Base, but they would need to go to the President for rules of engagement and there was no mechanism to do so. There was no clear resolution of the problem at the exercise. In late 1999, a great deal of discussion took place in the media about the crash off the coast of Massachusetts of Egypt Air Flight 990, a Boeing 767. The most plausible explanation that emerged was that one of the pilots had gone berserk, seized the controls, and flown the aircraft into the sea. After the 1999-2000 Millennium Alerts, when the nation had relaxed, Clark held a meeting of his counter-terrorism security group, devoted largely to the possibility of a possible airplane hijacking by Al-Qaeda. In his testimony, Clark commented that he thought that warning about the possibility of a suicide hijacking would have been just one more speculative theory among many, hard to spot since the volume of warnings of Al-Qaeda threats and other terrorist threats was in the tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands. Yet the possibility was imaginable, and imagined. In early August 1999, the FAA's Civil Aviation Security Intelligence Office summarized the Bin Laden hijacking threat. After a solid recitation of all the information available on this topic, the paper identified a few principal scenarios, one of which was a suicide hijacking operation. The FAA analysts judged such an operation unlikely because it does not offer an opportunity for dialogue to achieve the key goal of obtaining Rahman and other key captive extremists. A suicide hijacking is assessed to be an option of last resort. Analysts could have shed some light on what kind of opportunity for dialogue Al-Qaeda desired. The CIA did not write any analytical assessments of possible hijacking scenarios. One prescient pre-9-11 analysis of an aircraft plot was written by a Justice Department trial attorney. The attorney had taken an interest, apparently on his own initiative, 
in the legal issues that would be involved in shooting down a U.S. aircraft in such a situation. The North American Aerospace Defense Command imagined the possible use of aircraft as weapons too, and developed exercises to counter such a threat, from planes coming to the United States from overseas, perhaps carrying a weapon of mass destruction. None of this speculation was based on actual intelligence of such a threat. One idea, intended to test command and control plans, and NORAD's readiness, postulated a hijacked airliner coming from overseas and crashing into the Pentagon. The idea was put aside in the early planning of the exercise, as too much of a distraction from the main focus, war in Korea, and as too unrealistic. As we pointed out in Chapter 1, the military planners assumed that since such aircraft would be coming from overseas, they would have time to identify the target and scramble interceptors. We can therefore establish that at least some government agencies were concerned about the hijacking danger, and had speculated about various scenarios. The challenge was to flesh out and test those scenarios, then figure out a way to turn a scenario into constructive action. Since the Pearl Harbor attack of 1941, the intelligence community has devoted generations of effort to understanding the problem of forestalling a surprise attack. Rigorous analytic methods were developed, focused in particular on the Soviet Union, and several leading practitioners within the intelligence community discussed them with us. These methods have been articulated in many ways, but almost all seem to have at least four elements in common. 1. Think about how surprise attacks might be launched. 2. Identify telltale indicators connected to the most dangerous possibilities. 3. Where feasible, collect intelligence on these indicators. And 4. Adopt defences to deflect the most dangerous possibilities, or at least trigger an earlier warning. After the end of the Gulf War, concerns about lack of warning led to a major study, conducted of DCI Robert Gates in 1992, that proposed several recommendations, among them strengthening the National Intelligence Officer for warning. We were told that these measures languished under Gates's successors. Responsibility for warning related to a terrorist attack passed from the National Intelligence Officer for Warning to the CTC. An Intelligence Community Counterterrorism Board had the responsibility to issue threat advisories. With the important exception of analysis of Al-Qaeda efforts in chemical, biological, radiological and nuclear weapons, we did not find evidence that the methods to avoid surprise attack, that had been so laboriously developed over the years, were regularly applied. Considering what was not done suggests possible ways to institutionalize imagination. To return to the four elements of analysis just mentioned. 1. The CTC did not analyze how an aircraft, hijacked or explosives-laden, might be used as a weapon. It did not perform this kind of analysis from the enemy's perspective, red team analysis, even though suicide terrorism had become a principal tactic of Middle Eastern terrorists. If it had done so, we believe such an analysis would soon have spotlighted a critical constraint for the terrorists, finding a suicide operative able to fly large jet aircraft. They had never done so before 9-11. 2. The CTC did not develop a set of telltale indicators for this method of attack. For example, one such indicator might be the discovery of possible terrorists pursuing flight training to fly large jet aircraft, 
or seeking to buy advanced flight simulators. 3. The CTC did not propose, and the Intelligence Community Collection Management Process did not set, requirements to monitor such telltale indicators. Therefore the warning system was not looking for information, such as the July 2001 FBI report, of potential terrorist interest in various kinds of aircraft training in Arizona, or the August 2001 arrest of Zacharias Musari because of his suspicious behaviour in a Minnesota flight school. In late August the Musari arrest was briefed to the DCI and other top CIA officials under the heading Islamic Extremist Learns to Fly. Because the system was not tuned to comprehend the potential significance of this information, the news had no effect on warning. 4. Neither the intelligence community nor aviation security experts analysed systemic defences within an aircraft or against terrorist-controlled aircraft, suicidal or otherwise. The many threat reports mentioning aircraft were passed to the FAA. While that agency continued to react to specific, credible threats, it did not try to perform the broader warning functions we describe here. No one in the government was taking on that role for domestic vulnerabilities. Richard Clark told us that he was concerned about the danger posed by aircraft in the context of protecting the Atlanta Olympics of 1996, the White House complex, and the 2001 G8 summit in Genoa. But he attributed his awareness more to Tom Clancy novels than to warnings from the intelligence community. He did not, or could not, press the government to work on the systemic issues of how to strengthen the layered security defences to protect aircraft against hijackings, or put the adequacy of air defences against suicide hijackers on the national policy agenda. The methods for detecting and then warning of surprise attack that the US government had so painstakingly developed in the decades after Pearl Harbor did not fail. Instead, they were not really tried. They were not employed to analyse the enemy that, as the twentieth century closed, was most likely to launch a surprise attack directly against the United States. End of chapter 11.1